0: Will Cuyahoga County go purple tomorrow on the coronavirus chart? And will we ever get a clue as to why this virus is out of control? Mike DeWine is going to coach people on how to fight it, but I don't think he knows how it's spreading either. It's This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of the news by the team here at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. And I am here with Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnson, and Chris Wernowski for another hot discussion of the big news topics of the day. Wednesdays always have good topics. So are you guys ready to begin? Let's go. All right. Let's go. What is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's game plan for fighting the big coronavirus surge? And what does he say is causing it? Jane Cahoon, I'm going to say before you even start to discuss this, he (laughs) has no clue what's causing it because they (laughs) haven't been asking people. I want to get into a discussion here about the whole business thing that came up in yesterday's briefing. But let's start with what his strategy is.
1: Yeah, okay. You're going to throw the flag before I even get to start this time. Jeez. The governor seemed to have yet another new sense of urgency in his voice on Tuesday about these surging cases and, you know, hey, we're all in this together. We really have to double down. You know, we were a little while ago, we were trying to keep it under a thousand cases. Now we're routinely over 2,000 Cases, things are awful, et cetera, et cetera. So his latest approach is that he's going to reach out to the counties that have a high incidence of spread, which at this point, sadly, is 82 out of our 88 counties. High incidence means at least 100 cases per 100,000 Residents. So they're going to do these Zoom calls with local authorities to try to talk out how to further attack the problem, what they need from the state. He said, We need to get our game up, and this ground game, the grassroots effort, is really the key to getting this done. And then Lieutenant Governor John Houston chimed in saying, You know, we need people to take ownership of the problem at the local level and take actions on solutions at the local level. And it's going to take a community effort and, you know, everybody in the community needs to rally around a goal. So they're kind of putting this back on the the locals and trying to coach them through it, as you said. But anyway, you want to talk about the businesses next, right?
0: But but wait, but they did put up the chart that said these are the behaviors that are causing it to spread which we just reported, what, Monday or Tuesday? They don't know why it's spreading because they weren't asking. When they right. did contact tracing, they were using an old system that was aimed at looking forward. I get it. It's something you wish somebody would have thought about, but they haven't been asking. And they really haven't explained the enormous surge. I mean, we have gone up by 150% in a matter of four weeks. You can't say. That's because of restaurants. You can't say that's because of small family gatherings. It seems like it's a cheap excuse. And I do wonder whether they don't really want to know what's causing the surge, because if it is businesses, you know, I've got this feeling in the pit of my stomach. This all comes down to air heating systems, spreading the virus, blasting it at people in a way that your mask doesn't protect you. And then people go home and infect their families. I mean, that, that's the difference between a month ago and now is we all turned our heat on. I have not heard anybody even speculate on another cause that would show this enormous surge. It, it, it's just you're not going to tell me we have a 150% increase, increase in people eating inside of restaurants. So for them to put that up and then say, we don't think it's businesses,
1: you, you're right. just making I'll, it up. Hawaiian and Houston seem to go out of their way to say businesses are not the source of this alarming spread and as you said even though we know that their contact tracing system has not produced any reliable data about that at all and this but think graphic, about the motive
0: it, they have for that though if
1: they don't want if, to shut anything down
0: right if you find out that every factory with a forced air system every office building that's open with forced air system might be spreading it you have no choice but to shut that down you, you, I mean, that's the way you stop the spread. And then the economy gets crippled and all of the the far right conservatives go nuts. And so. So I, do, do you think they're not exploring what the cause is because they're afraid of the answer?
1: Possibly. I, I know, Chris. Yeah. Runowski wants to jump in here, but I'll just say really quickly, I'm worrying that we're getting closer to the election and politics is is creeping into this a little bit too much. But. I think Chris could probably uh, give his take on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just, we we
2: actually, we had like a pretty robust conversation before the podcast, before you got on Chris. And, and one of the, you know, one of the things that I think is frustrating is that the problem has been Mike DeWine's political party. It's like he's the leader of this party that has this resistance to the things that we need to do to actually get this under control. And he sort of, he sort of his, you know, his good guy, like aw shucks kind of demeanor about this is kind of wearing thin because, it, you know, this is going to require some very hard decisions. And, and I, I just I don't see him making any tough decision that that's going to relate to the possibility of shutting down businesses or anything before the election. I just I think I I don't think he's going to do anything before this election. And, you know, this whole thing about appealing to local local governments to get people to do the right thing. It's like the saying is not the buck stops at the local level. Like you're the executive of this state. And at some point you're going to have to make a decision because relying on people's goodwill has not worked. We're deep into this and we've learned that people are not like left to their own devices. They're not going to do the right thing. At least some people aren't. And you so know, what if
0: it's but Chris what if it's not about that what if the people who are well, doing the right well, the thing are getting this, infected anyway
2: But the, if we're this far into it and we don't know what's wrong I mean look we haven't we haven't had an a full-time health director you know people in Mike's party have scared two health directors away and and it's okay. it's absurd that the politics we hear from politicians every Every day. It's DeWine in Houston. They have the monopoly on the information that is getting out about this. And we don't have somebody working at the state level at a full time in that position who's doing it. And and I think the problem was the minute science took a backseat to the economy, we were going to end up here. And so and here we are. You know, I mean, but, every, you can't but say I, this is surprising.
0: I, I'm not but, surprised. But, but what is surprising is the enormous level of the surge. And I, what what has taken me aback is the complete lack of urgency in understanding that. There's, there's, there's physics involved, man. This doesn't just go up because it's cold. Something is spreading this virus in a much more rapid fashion than we've seen any time before. What is it? It doesn't feel like anybody on the state level is trying to answer that question. And then you sit back and think, well, wait, why wouldn't they be trying to answer that question? And is the reason that they're afraid of the answer? I don't know. It's something we'll continue to talk about. I, uh, but I do expect we'll be purple tomorrow, which is going to cause a whole bunch of kids to have to stay home from school, stop playing sports, because we are not getting the answers that we keep asking on this podcast and in all our other platforms at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. It's this week in the CLE. Which Ohio cities have sued to block the collection of $150 million per year from Ohioans? Fees set up by HB6, the corrupt bill forged by $60 million in bribery cash from First Energy to bail out nuclear plants. Laura Johnston, it's nice to see somebody taking action to stop this corrupt bill. I was a little bit surprised it was Cincinnati and Columbus, but not Cleveland. We don't really have an answer as to why Cleveland decided to sit it out. But what's going on here?
3: Yeah, it's Columbus and Cincinnati and the officials filed a lawsuit in Franklin County Court on Tuesday. They argued that that $150 million um, nuclear energy fee created through HB6 is an unconstitutional tax because of its allegedly corrupt origins. City officials say they're looking for the courts to intervene since the Republican-controlled state legislature has yet to act even though folks like Governor Mike DeWine And uh, Dave Yost and others have asked them to repeal this. So we've talked about this before on the podcast. Yost is also sued, seeking to block the subsidies from flowing to Energy Harbor, which is the former first energy subsidiary that now owns the plants. But unlike Yost's lawsuits, Columbus and Cincinnati say the lawsuit seeks to prevent the fees from being collected at all. Um, Yost said that every person is welcome to be an ally in the fight But he talked about these unintended consequences that would kill other things in the process. Maybe Jane knows more about that than I do. But actually, the suit is brought by two Democrats, Cincinnati Mayor John Cranley and Columbus City Attorney Zach Klein.
0: I, I just want to point out again that every member of the Ohio House is on the ballot Tuesday. They have refused to repeal this bill that they passed, this stinking, rotten bill that is forged in the corruption of bribery. And when people go to the polls, I hope they consider it because there is no excuse for this bill still existing. It's ridiculous that cities have to go and sue on behalf of their residents to stop the collection of corrupt fees. I I didn't realize Yost had filed. I thought Yost had threatened to file. Did he actually file that suit, Jane?
1: Yeah, yeah, he did file it. But as Laura said, it it seeks to stop the money from going to Energy Harbor, but not yeah, to stop it from being collected from ratepayers. So this city suit would stop that as well.
3: There are go some ahead. other political overtones. So because this is coming just before the presidential election, Cranley, I bet I mean, you'd never guess that these guys are Democrats, right? Cranley is exploring challenging DeWine in 2022. Klein is an ally of Joe Biden. So there you go.
0: Okay, we'll see what happens. It's nice that there are a lot of people trying to stop this bill when the people whose job it is to stop the bill refuse to do it. And again, they're all on the ballot. It's this week in the CLE. What are two arch conservative out of state men accused of doing to discourage voting in Cleveland and East Cleveland actions that constitute multiple felonies? Chris Warnowski, this is pretty much one of the most despicable things that have come out of this election locally. What are they doing?
2: Well, I think that's what people say about Jacob Wall. So Jacob Wall and Jack Berkman are two very sort of well-known – in the Nixon era, they'd be called dirty tricksters, I think. But they they are well-known sort of political hoaxers, and they were charged uh, in a multi-state robocall campaign that prosecutors say was meant to scare voters in urban areas with large minority populations out of voting by mail in the November 3rd election. Uh, Wall, who is uh, 22, and Berkman, who is 54, were indicted on eight counts of telecommunications fraud and seven counts of bribery for making more than 8,000 calls that were placed to Cleveland and East Cleveland residents. They were already facing similar charges in Michigan and a civil lawsuit in New York City connected to the same scheme. So they are free on a $100,000 bond after pleading guilty to charges in Michigan And they are expected to make their first court appearance on November 13th. So to explain it a little bit, the charges stem from a group that's known as Project 1599. And what would happen is people would get a call and they would be told that police and debt collection companies could use the personal information that voters put on their mail-in ballots to track them down or to track down people who have outstanding warrants and credit card debt, which is not true. And the caller also falsely claimed that the U.S. Center for Disease Control would use information to implement mandatory vaccines. So, you know, just I, from top to bottom, loaded with racism and, and misinformation. And and they made over 85,000 calls in August to residents in Michigan, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Illinois.
0: Um, I bristled the, the description of these guys as hoaxers because that that almost seems like Ha ha ha. This is all, uh, you know, in good fun. It's a prank when when it's, it's about as serious as it gets. You are trying to intimidate black voters out of voting so that the Republicans can win. And this comes not far on the heels of the revelation that, that we reported on a few weeks ago about how the Trump campaign had listed large blocks of people in Cleveland and other cities across America as people they wanted to discourage from voting a british television station got hold of the database and was gracious enough to provide us with the cleveland data so there was an effort then to discourage black democratic voters from going to the polls and here we have it again and and what i'm what i'm worried about chris is this is what we know. We don't know what we don't know is going on. What other efforts are being made to to diminish black voting? Including?
2: I mean, I mean, beyond, you know, places like Michigan allowing armed people at, at uh, you know, polling stations and, you know, Facebook's sort of unchecked wild west of political ads. And there's no end to it. And, and this is. I mean, look, this kind of stuff is, pre, you know, dates back to the beginning of our democracy. You know, there's always sort of dirty tricks, but the tools are much more sophisticated now. You know, it's not like putting out a political pamphlet that that calls, you know, John Adams, a, you know, <laughs> you know, he's sympathetic to the king or whatever. This is, you know, this is getting people where they live. This is scaring people. This is, you know and this is using people's personal information against them you know and but you know you have to wonder why why they're targeting minorities specifically you know it's it it says a lot about them that, that that who who they're going after and who they're trying to keep from voting and and it and it really it really speaks to something very very ugly about our country and about our voting system that is you know you know in, in some respects, broken, you know, well, it, as
0: you point out there, there I mean, there is a long history in this country of efforts to disenfranchise black voters. Mm-hmm. Some were, were overt and some were more subtle, but, but man, this is despicable. And I, you know, I get emails from people saying, you know, the, the problems of race in America, racism are over overstated. Well, just look at this. You're trying to get 8,000 black people so afraid of voting that they won't, won't take advantage of their what we consider a sacred right. So I'm glad they got them. I'm glad they're indicted, and and I hope in the end this is treated pretty seriously. And it's not some slap on the wrist plea deal. There are these are serious felonies, and so we'll have to see. Prosecutor Michael O'Malley uh, took the case, so it's good to see it's this week in the CLE. How many Ohio absentee ballots have not been turned in with a week to go before Election Day? Jan Cahoon, we're setting records, but there's still a whole bunch that are not out there. And at this point, you really don't want to trust the U.S. mail to get them in.
1: Right. We we have a staggering 840,000 absentee ballots out there that have not been returned. Now, that number is only current through last Friday, so there could be a lot more that have been returned by now, Uh, although... The deadline to request a ballot still has not technically passed. Although, if you want to do that, you you really have to do that quickly and probably not use the U.S. mail, but you know, deliver your application to the Dropbox and then deliver your ballot to the Dropbox. But anyway, Secretary of State Frank LaRose appeared on, on Governor Mike DeWine's coronavirus briefing Tuesday to give an update on these numbers. You know, which, as you said, were smashing records. Nearly 2.2 million Ohioans have already voted early uh, about seven hundred fifty thousand have voted early in person and a million and a half have returned their their mail ballots already LaRo said and um as of Tuesday, three point two million of the state's eight million registered voters had requested to to vote early and that's compared to one point six million for for the 2016 election so that's that's a big jump there.
0: And look, as a public service, I think it's safe to say if you have an absentee ballot, you haven't turned in, don't mail it. The courts are filled with cases now that are putting into jeopardy the counts following election day. We don't seem to have that issue in Ohio, but it doesn't mean we won't hand deliver it, take it down to the drop box, because at this point, the Postal Service may not get your ballot there in time to get it counted.
1: You know, there was a case in Wisconsin where they're not going to allow any counting of ballots that arrive after election day in Ohio, it is the law. It's not something that's being fought over right now that, that ballots will still be counted as long as they are postmarked by November 2nd, the day before the election. And if they arrive by November 13th. And so don't be confused by what's, what's going on in other States. This, this is our law. This is one area of Ohio law. That's a little bit liberal than uh, more liberal than some other states.
0: But as we know, laws can be challenged and the mail is screwed up and at this point you you if you want to be guaranteed that your vote counts, take it down there, deliver it yourself because there is no guarantee right, right. it will get there. We've heard horror stories about the US mail and the postal service itself is advocating people had moved with with haste. So
1: I had one more public service announcement. You know, LaRose, I really agree with Rosa on this. Like When they announced the unofficial results on election night, that is not the official results. A lot of people think that's the outcome. But when we have an election like this with such a huge number of absentee ballots, and then, as I said, the deadline for accepting them later, you know, people talk about the results flipping. They're not flipping. It's just one is unofficial and the other one is official. So there's the end of my speech.
0: It's this week in the CLE. How is Cleveland State University handling spring break in the coronavirus era? Laura Johnston, colleges and universities are offering all sorts of creative ways to avoid their students going to Florida, basically getting sick and coming back and infecting all of us. Cleveland State has a new wrinkle in this. What is their strategy?
3: Cleveland State has eliminated their spring break and made winter break longer instead. So, that they don't bring back the travel the disease from Florida. They've moved it from the middle of March to January 9th through 16th, and it's basically just added on to their winter break. Spring semester classes will begin January 16th. 44% of classes will be provided on campus, according to the, the college. And they'll schedule two reading days with no classes, so people do get a little bit of a break, one in March and one in April.
0: How is that different from what Ohio State is doing?
3: I believe... Ohio State moved. I, I could be wrong on this, but I think that they just eliminated their spring break and moved graduation earlier. Uh, Kent State moved its spring break back to April 12th, the 18th. Um, Baldwin-Wallace isn't having a spring break. It's going to have three days off. Like What you said is correct in that a lot of these schools are just coming up with creative ways to keep kids on campus at, in a straight shot so that they're not like leaving and coming back. Plenty of schools are not coming back to campus after Thanksgiving because there's usually like three weeks in between there and that would just be ripe for bringing anything back that they got at home.
0: Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Is Sherwin-Williams making good on its promise to build a new headquarters in Northeast Ohio? Chris Ternowski, this is not an unexpected development, but it's still important that it happened.
2: Yeah, so the company bought... 119 acres of land in Brecksville that is going to be the home of its new research and development facility. The property that's off Interstate 77 made it into the Cleveland-based paint giant's hands through a series of transfers early earlier this month. The land was uh, formerly owned by the sister company of the Dalek Group, and it sold for $15.2 million. And While it isn't surprise, it's, it is kind of good news that the company does plan to build a 500,000 square foot research and development facility down there. It'll be part of the, of Valor Acres, a mixed use development that the suburb has planned for years, along with, uh, some other companies. Sherwin Williams plans to build the, the R&D facility that used to be part it used to be where the Department of Veteran Affairs hospital used to be and it's one of two large projects that they're undertaking in the next several years which which includes the the building that they plan to build in downtown Cleveland and and I thought what was interesting is that the CEO of the company said in a in a statement that they put out that more than uh, 3500 employees will work at the two sites so he he has really sort of sought to tamp down any concerns that the company will not return to the offices that they're spending a lot of money to build so he kind of made it clear that remote working is not part of their their long-term plan
0: yeah i'm still we've said it before i'm still surprised they didn't cut back you'd think stockholders would be asking about it but it's good news for cleveland you're mm-hmm. listening to this week in the cle we're going to get out of October without snow. How common is that? Jane Kuhn, I delight in coming up with these kinds of questions for Rich Exner. And you delight <laughs> in sending me links to stories that he's written on the identical topic sometime in the past. We have a little bit of both of that today. But what's the deal with snow in October?
1: Yeah, we love Rich. He, he updated something he did before, which was a story in chart showing the first and last snowfalls over the last 50 years. So you can look on there and see when it was, how much it was, et cetera. But we do know the last time we had an October snow was in 2015, and that was on October 17th. And I counted 11 times over that 50-year period that we've had a snowfall in October. Now, a year ago, the first snow was on November 7th, and the last snowfall was 162 days later on May 11th. That's pretty unusual. Normally, the last snowfall is in, is in March or April. But on average, over the last 50 years, there have been 152 days from the first recorded snowfall to the last. And that's based on Hopkins Airport, which is, you know, other areas may get snow earlier or later, but that's where the historical records are kept.
0: Yeah, that chart was a little bit depressing. I mean, it's depressing because we're turning the clocks back this weekend. That's always a bad one for me because it's dark. But there wasn't a lot of hope that we're going to get through another month of that snow. There were there might have been one or two times where the first one was in December, but there were a whole lot of first snows in the first two weeks in November. Yes, winter yes. is coming. We'll see. Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. How much of a lifeline has outdoor dining been to restaurants and what do they fear will happen as the temperatures drop? Laura Johnston, Mark Bona took a look at this. This is not good news for restaurants in Cleveland.
3: No, it's not. Patios have been crucial in the pandemic. I mean, I don't I know you're not eating indoors in restaurants, and a lot of people are not comfortable with that. So if they've gone out and to one of the few places they can go out, they're sitting on a patio. Cleveland had passed new rules that allowed restaurants to expand their outdoor seating into public spaces, including sidewalks, parking areas, and even streets. And they've extended those some- through June of 2021. So restaurants can keep that expanded exterior space. They just have to get creative to keep people coming through the cold weather. So restaurants are investing in everything from heaters and fire pits to igloos and greenhouses. But um, as you may know, those heaters are actually very difficult to find at this point. And even propane is running out. So restaurants have got a really tough, tough uh, way to figure this out. Lakewood Truck Park, which is this new outdoor dining concept. It opened in June. It has like a social space with picnic tables and fire pits. They're going to offer a lot of hot drinks like apple cider, hot chocolate coffee. They're adding the igloos, the heaters, and um, they're going to, just so you know, those igloos are like see-through domed structures that one party can go into and stay a little bit warmer. And then those are going to be cleaned uh, after each use.
0: At what point, though, does that not Become effective. I mean, a certain temperature, it doesn't matter how much stuff you put outside, you're still going to be confronted with chilly temperatures that make you uncomfortable.
3: Yeah, but the, the restaurants have said that people are coming prepared, that they are wearing their layers, they're wearing their wool socks and bringing blankets, that people are just looking for a way to get out. And this is this is what we've got at this point. I have a question about the igloos in that it sounds great. It will totally separate you from all other diners. But a lot of times if you've joined a friend for lunch like then and someone you don't live with, then I don't know that you want to be cooped up in the bubble with them. Um, If you're not living in the same space, because then your air is just trapped in a plastic bubble.
0: Yeah. I, I I I wonder just how far this gets you into the winter, because I think you get to a certain point where people will just think, I'll, I'll eat it home, rather yeah. than wrap and up some, in a parka and shiver.
3: And some and some businesses are really doubling down on the takeout, which makes a lot of sense for going in this, because it is expensive. Um, Gervaisi Vineyards actually put in radiant gas heaters under their patio. So think about all the gas lines that they've had to do to make that happen. So yes, go if you're if you want, there will be plenty of places offering takeout. And I believe the uh, takeout alcohol is permanent now, right? So you can get your drinks to go.
0: Okay. You're listening to this week in the C L E. We're setting a modern record with every homicide that occurs with two months to go in the year. When was the last time we had so many people killed in Cleveland? Chris Ranasky, this is a depressing toll. We haven't seen anything like this in a very long time.
2: Right. So as of as of last week or this weekend we had five slayings between uh Thursday and early Sunday in Cleveland and that brought the homicide total for the year to 150, which is the highest homicide number since 1993 uh, when there were 167 killings. Um at least 135 people were killed by gun vi- gun violence uh so far this year. And, um, the last four months have been particularly violent. Uh, 20 people were killed, uh, both in July and August and 22, uh, in September and 21 thus far in October. Um, and that number may have actually changed overnight. So, you know, I, I you know, as of, as of this recording, you know, that number could change. Of the five new slayings, charges have been filed in two cases and they appear to be separate and not connected. But yeah, we, we have, uh, this is sort of a, a grim statistic. And, you know, I, I, I know it's not solace to a lot of people. I think I we're not alone as far as, may, you know, as big cities go. You know, I think everybody is sort of, you know, all cities are struggling with this issue of gun violence right now. And it's it's one of those things, again, where we're going to talk about why it's happening. And we, you know, we really don't know. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's I, a combination I, of everything.
0: I arrived in town as a crime reporter almost 25 years ago as Cleveland's death toll from homicide was dropping significantly from the highs of the crack years. Cleveland was Mm -hmm. one of the hardest hit cities by crack. People were battling over street corners. There were drive-by shootings left and right because there was money to be made by taking over the corners. So you knew then what the cause was. And back in the 70s, when they hit their all-time high, there were some factors that you could look at and say, this is what's happening. There were a lot more people in town then. You really don't have that here, except that everybody's got a gun and there there seems to be almost a wanton disregard for for life. But it's not it doesn't seem to be at least we don't know that it's an economic thing where people are battling for for drug turf. And that's got to be disturbing to the people trying to solve this just why is it starting to rocket back up? I think it's
2: largely economic. I think the, you know, we're in a desperate time for people. We're fortunate, you know, we all have the ability to work from home and record this remotely and then do our jobs, but, you know, not everybody does. And, and I don't, you know, there's, there's some element of this that is the old, you know, drug war years kind of numbers. And, and we're, you know, sort of seeing street drugs and all that stuff becoming a problem. But there, there's an element of it, too, that we have to focus on the, the social issues that kind of lead us to this place as well.
0: And the prevalence of guns. I mean, we've never had this many people have this much access. <laughs> yeah, it's weird.
2: Like even the Democrats are getting armed now. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Everybody's everybody's really uh, everybody's sort of gun shopping. I, I guarantee you, you're going to have a hard time getting guns right now. But right. but here we here we are.
0: We'll have to leave it there. It's This Week in the CLE. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back with another episode on Thursday morning.